Revelation chapter 2. I'll read verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, that you would give the light that only your spirit can give. We need illumination and application. Lord, not because your word is unclear or because it is dark and hidden, but because our hearts are dark and because we we don't like to see what it says. We don't like the clarity of it. And so we need you to come and, and to reveal it to us. We need more than just a human preacher. We need a, a spiritual preacher, a divine preacher to come. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make the application of this word to us here. We know this word comes down through the ages. That it wasn't just Ephesus. That this is a, a dangerous threat and a dangerous place for any church to find themselves in. So I pray that you would warn us, help us to see where we stand, help us to see ourselves the way you see us, help us to hear your evaluation, your assessment. Oh Lord, please protect us from self-deception. For Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he, because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I, this account, this little scene beside the sea is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture because depending on what day of the week you read it and depending on the state and condition of your heart in which you read it, it can be at one and the same time thrillingly encouraging and motivating and helpful and it can also be horrific. We are aware, I think we understand that the reason that the Lord Jesus asked Peter three times was because Peter had denied him three times. Peter had acted in such a way that looked like he didn't love Jesus. What could be more unloving than that in the moment of, of testing, when your reputation is at stake, to say, well, I don't, I don't know them. When, when solidarity means the most to say, I don't, I don't know the man. I don't know who you're talking about. And three times Peter had done this. Three consecutive times Peter acted like he did not love the Lord Jesus. And yet the Lord comes to him here and gives him almost like the, the opportunity to make it right. Very simply, um, in, in one little interaction. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Okay, we're cool then. And, 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 you, and he gave him a job to do. He, Peter was, I think what's happening is, is the Lord is saying, now you're ready. You've been brought down. You've seen where your heart can go. Now I'm going to bring you back up and I'm going to send you to do a job. And we've probably all had this experience. I hope if you're a Christian, you have this experience where you have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've acted like I didn't love you. You know that I love you. And that's all we can say. You know that I love you. My heart toward you has not changed, but I have sinned. And any time we sin, this is what we're doing. Every time we sin, we're acting like we don't love the Lord. But if you're a believer, you can come to Him and say, Lord, you know that I love you. My actions were not in accord with what was happening in my heart. And for a believer, that's a, again, it's a blessing to be able to do that, but it's a horrifying thing to have to come and say, admit to yourself and to the Lord, I have acted like I did not love my Savior, the one who laid down His life for me. I acted with a thought, with a word, in a moment, I acted like I did not love Him. But I wonder if you had to choose another condition, the opposite condition, if you would pick this one as the, the better state to be in. Peter acted like he didn't love the Lord when in fact he did. There's another thing, another trap that we might find ourselves in, which is the problem with the church in Ephesus, is that they would have had to pray, Lord, you know that we don't love you. We're doing everything right. We, we have acted in such a way that by all outward appearances, we love the Lord, but you know everything, and you know we don't. 
Apollos had planted this church. Paul had watered this church. God had given the growth in this church. The letter of Ephesians was written back to this church around 60 or 61 A.D. The pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, were written to Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila, as far as we know, were members of the church in Ephesus, the ones who were able to take Apollo aside and, Apollos aside and, and instruct him in the ways of God more correctly in his preaching. The pastoral epistles were written in the late 60s, just before Paul was executed. Eventually, history tells us the Apostle John was actually one of the elders in the church at Ephesus. That, that city still today boasts the home place and the burial place of the Apostle John. So if there's any church in all of Scripture that we could say had a solid foundation, it was the church in Ephesus. If there was any church that we could say they had a clear warning about what could be the temptations that would come upon a church, it was Ephesus. This was the church that Paul spoke to in Acts chapter 20 when he said, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And from among your own number will arise men, speaking twisted things, trying to draw away disciples after them. So they had a, a solid foundation. They had been clearly warned. They had years of faithful pastoral leadership. But now when we come to the Revelation, at least a generation has passed, if not two. And I want you to take notice of what we find. And as we read through this address, just ask... Remember, we don't get to say, well, there are churches out there like this. We have to ask, what in Ephesus sounds like me? What in Ephesus sounds like Covenant Bible Church? What were they doing that is commendable? What were they doing that is wrong? What does Christ have for them and how ought we to act? Once we use this as sort of the, the grid over which we can lay our own, our own hearts, how should we respond First, let's ask the question, what were they doing right? Our Lord Jesus is the Good Shepherd, and He's a very tender and gentle shepherd, and so we see that He begins by addressing some commendable things first. He says in verse 2, I know your works. This is the same word that Peter used beside the sea that day when he said, Lord, you know everything. This is not that experiential acquaintance with something. This is an absolute, complete, comprehensive knowledge of all of the facts. When he says, I know your works, what he's saying is, I'm completely and thoroughly acquainted with what's happening in Ephesus. You don't need to give me an update. Nothing has slipped under the cracks or, or gone under the radar. I don't need a memo. You don't need to update me on how ministries are happening. As the Lord addresses this church, He's not addressing them based on what the pastor had told them about the church before the service. You know, I had a meeting and your pastor tells me that these things are going well and these things are happening, but over here you're struggling here. That's sort of a one-sided view that very often a pastor can have of his church. That's not how the Lord assesses His churches. He has an absolute, complete, full knowledge of their works. Everything that could be known about the saints in Ephesus and the church in Ephesus, he knows. Now hear, hear how he describes these works. He says, I know your toil. 
Now the word for toil here is the typical word for work, but it's specifically for our comprehension. This is the the word for work that brings to our mind blue-collar labor. The kind of work that starts out with a light blue collar and ends with a dark blue collar. Light blue armpits, dark blue armpits. This is, this is the kind of work that you go into knowing that when I finish this work, I'm going to be exhausted. Uh, a heavy and burdensome, weary work. He says, I know your toil. I know you're busy about this work. He says, I know your patient endurance, your steadfastness. The inward fortitude in the heart that motivates someone to continue even though the collar's getting dark blue and the armpits are getting dark blue and you're, you're laboring. But something is pushing you to endure, to keep going even though it's hard. He says, I know your patient endurance. And he says, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And these words are important. You'll see why in a minute. The word bear means to hold up under the weight. When we use the phrase, I cannot put up with that, you know, you just think of the words, to put up. I can't get up under the weight of that. I'm not going to tolerate it. The Lord says, I know how you cannot. You don't have the ability to put up with evil, to tolerate evil. I know that when, when evil is flaunted before your face in the culture, you're disgusted at it. I know that when evil comes and, and tries to make its inroads into the church, it turns your stomach. This assumes that they in Ephesus had a, a knowledge of right and wrong, of good and evil, and they could not bear with it. They would not tolerate evil. He says they've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now this assumes that in Ephesus the saints knew what were the signs of a true apostle, the doctrine of a true apostle, the, the, the holy life that would accompany a true apostle. They knew all of those things. And if anybody came in and said, hey, we've come down from Jerusalem, we've got a message from the saints there, and we've got a, a message from the Lord that we need to deliver to the churches, and they would say, well, hold on right there, just stop, because we need to examine you. And then at the end of the examination, the saints in Ephesus would have been able to say, Sorry, bud, you don't, you, you don't match. Your, your, your message don't match. Your, your life doesn't match. You're not an apostle. You're a liar, sir. And they could do that. They, would, they had the ability to search the Scriptures, to compare Scripture with Scripture, to compare prophecy with prophecy. And they could find false apostles. You couldn't come into Ephesus and, and deceive them for very long. Verse 3, he says, I know... You are patiently enduring. Here's why the words are important. Because this is the same thing he said in verse 2. The same word. I know your patient endurance. That characterizes them. And then here he says, And I know you are enduring patiently. In other words, it wasn't that they had just endured patiently once. This was not a thing of the past. As John writes to them, and as the Lord evaluates them, they are presently enduring something. The... We talked about the paganism of their culture, the pressures that would have come upon a Christian church to conform just a little bit. Don't be so dogmatic about the icons to Diana. I mean, come on. This is the economy here. Do you want the economy to crash? Then ease up a little bit. Pressures upon the church constantly. Some type of trial. And he says, I know you're enduring patiently. You're still doing it. He says, I know... 
that you are bearing up for my namesake. The same word that was used in verse 2 again. You cannot bear with evil. You will not bear up with evil. But here, you are bearing up for my namesake. So they refused to bear with evil, but they were continuing to bear up under the weight and the pressure coming upon them. Why? For my name's sake. Christ said that. For the sake of the name of Christ, for Christ's reputation, hardship was coming upon them, and they were willing to bear it. The hardship coming upon them because of their witness for Christ, or perhaps they were willing to bear it for the sake of Christ, for His reputation. He says, I know that you're bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. It's the negative form of the same word, toil, that was used at the very beginning. So I know that you're working. You're in a labor that in any normal circumstance would lead to exhaustion, would lead to weariness. But you're not getting tired. You're not growing weary. They weren't finished. They were not about to throw in the towel. They were willing to continue. They showed no signs of slowing down all of their labors. Skip down to verse 6. He says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They shared in Christ's hatred for the works of the Nicolaitans. And we'll see more of them later. But the Nicolaitans were said to be sort of an antinomian sect. They claimed to be Christians, and yet they, they, they adopted some, for, some form of antinomianism. And we can imagine this in our day. We're Christians, and Christ has set us free from the law. Therefore, we're not bound to walk in any sort of external holiness. We're free to exercise our liberties in certain ways. And uh, that tended towards unholiness and sensual living. And the Ephesians hated this. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans. And Christ did too. They, they, they shared this with Christ. We do not like it when men come in bearing the name of Christ and yet their lifestyle does not match the lifestyle of Christ. We hate that. Christ says, I do too. So the church at Ephesus was laboring under constant pressures that were coming upon them for the sake of Christ. They were able to teach and vet men who claimed to be Apostles, they would not accept false teachers or false teaching. They hated lawlessness. They could not put up with evil. And they showed no sign of slowing down. They were not getting tired. This was a fighting church. This church, when you put this together, they were running offense and defense. They were doing it. Now these things are commendable. But we have to ask, what were they doing wrong? Because in an age like ours and in an age like theirs where there is so much broadly scattered, rampant, openly accepted false teaching, false teachers and lawlessness even amongst people who claim to be Christians. That's our culture. That's their culture. We might read all of the commendable things and we would assume that whatever fault we might could find at the church in Ephesus, surely it has to be outweighed by whatever's wrong. Surely, I mean, every true church under heaven is subject, of mixture, subject to mixture and error. Nobody's perfect. No church is perfect. Don't even try to sit down and find the perfect church. But if I could describe the perfect church in my generation, I'm describing Ephesus. This is, we, we, we know people that are looking for churches like this. 
And they're willing to drive an hour, two hours, three hours if they could just find a church like this. But they look around and they say, there are no good churches. And what they mean is, there aren't any churches like Ephesus in our area. And so we read all of this and we say, man, if we just had more churches like Ephesus, that's what we need in our culture. But that's not what the Lord Jesus says. As I said last week, this one and the church at Laodicea are the two churches that we're, where we can say very clearly they are in danger of no longer being considered a church. So what does he have against them? Verse 4, But this I have against you. And we could almost imagine as this letter is read in the sanctuary in, in Ephesus as they're meeting and they're, they've, they've heard all of these commendable things from the Apostle John. They miss him. They're, they're, they're glad to know that he's still doing well. They hear that he has a word from the Spirit, an inspired word. This is, these are not just uh, friendly, friendly communications. This is a word from Christ. And he begins to describe all the things that are commendable. And something begins to well up in them, a, a sort of ecclesiastical pride. Not a bad pride, but a, a, a sense of gratitude. Yeah, that, that's us. And, and, and he knows, John knows what we're dealing with here. The Lord Jesus knows what we're dealing with here. And we've been faithful. And they begin to well up and they begin to think to themselves, man, what a blessing it is to have a church like this. There are not many churches like this around. We know a lot of people who would love to have a church like this, and they don't. What a blessing it is. And then they have to hear from Christ, but this I have against you. Very often we will freely admit that we have sins and we have shortcomings and we look at our church and we'll say, well, now our church is not perfect. But we don't like to think of Jesus Christ Himself coming face to face and saying, I've got something against you. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. The word abandoned means to leave behind. And that's why some would translate this, you've, you've left your first love. When we think of the word abandoned, there's sort of two different ways we think of it. There's like the abandoned building where, you know, the business went south and just nobody's keeping up with it and it's gone, gone to pot. But then there's, you know, like in recent news, the abandoned baby in the dumpster. Like a, a willful rejection, I don't want this child, I'll just put it here and let it die. That type of abandonment. This, this word is not as severe as the purposed rejection. It wasn't that they said, we refuse to have that first love. They had just left it. They had moved on from it. The love, he says, you had at first. Or we could render it the love, the first one, the first love. The emphasis is on first, not necessarily the love itself. There were some there that still had some love, but it was not the love which characterized them at the first. That's what he's saying. Now with, with this phraseology in this picture come all of these difficulties in trying to understand and trying to wrap our minds around what was the problem. I mean, they seem like a great church. It sounds like a really good church. When we begin to think of love, very often we need an object. As a matter of fact, we'll very often use the word love as the title of the object of love. When, when Mala and Rachel are here, take note of this, when they talk to each other, they are love. Excuse me, love. That's how they address one another. It's a title for the object of love. 
And so when we read, you have abandoned the love you had at first, we want to know what is the object of the love which was strong at first but has now been waning, that they have drifted from. What was the object? And so we assume that to abandon the love you had at first implies that they had abandoned the particular object of love. Now, to be sure, all real love, and especially Christian love, has an object. There's no way to have love without an object of love. The object is not irrelevant, but the object is also not what they had abandoned. It does not say that they had abandoned, you have abandoned the object of your love, you have abandoned the love. So the love that they had for this object was growing cold. Can you see the difference in that? It's, it's the love that they're leaving. But we still need to know what the object is. It's not irrelevant. It's very important, actually. So what is the object of love which every Christian ought to have and every Christian church ought to have? What's that object? Let me read to you several suggestions. James Durham, in his commentary, says that this is a reference to the duties of love to God and others. A warm impression of love to God, affections for others. Love in the manner in which they did their duty to God and others. In good Puritan fashion, he doesn't stop at just one, but he has to enumerate multiple objects of love. Albert Barnes says that this is evidently love to the Savior. Adam Clark says this is a strong and ardent affection for God and sacred things. John Gill says this is a love to God and Christ and one another. Matthew Henry says this is a holy love and zeal for Christ, holiness, and heaven. Matthew Poole says this is a reference to their warmth in propagation of the gospel and maintaining the truth. The pulpit commentary says this is a love for the brethren or probably just love for Christ Himself. Henry Sweet says this is probably a reference to love for the poor. Ray Summers, a love for Christ. Craig Coster, love for other believers. Simon Kistemacher, love for God and others. Dennis Johnson, love for other people. Greg Beal, love for outsiders leading to an external witness in the world. John MacArthur Jr., a love for God, love for Christ, love for others, and love for the world. Now, I reference all these men, not so that you can know how many commentaries I read, because a lot of them I didn't read the full commentary. I just wanted to see what they said about this. I read them all so that you'll know what I mean when I say, I agree with them. The church had drifted from its original temperature of Christian love. But Christian love does have several distinct objects. The Christian's love that other people really don't love. And there are some things that Christians might love that if you drifted from that love, it really doesn't matter. If you love Ford trucks and you drift from that love, that doesn't matter. Who cares? But there are some things that every Christian ought to love and every Christian church ought to love that if you begin to drift from that, you're on, you're on dangerous territory. And we can consider these objects of love sort of in concentric circles, starting with the most important. The supreme object of all Christian love is God. And specifically, God in Christ. Love for Christ is foundational to all Christian love. Apart from the love for God and the love for Christ, there is no other love. When you have a love for God and a love for Christ in the heart, all other appropriate loves will flow from that. 
You can't separate the two, as we'll see in just a second. So we have a love for God and a love for Christ, but then that overflows into love for the church of Christ, as we studied in our study on unity, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, 21. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You can't have a love for God, a love for the Lord Jesus, and not love other Christians. So they're, they're connected. So any Christian, any Christian church is going to love God, and they're also going to love one another. But we're also commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. To love those who persecute you and utter all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. Love those people too. So we don't get to stop and say, well, I love Christians, but everybody else just really gets on my nerves. We ought to and should have a love for the lost world. Love is the chief Christian Virtue. Jonathan Edwards says it's the sum of all Christian virtue. A love for God and for Christ first and foremost and the things of God overflowing to a love for the saints of God overflowing in a love for the lost and dying world. This it characterizes every Christian. When, when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, what's the first one? The fruit of the Spirit is love. In Colossians he says, love which binds all things together, all other graces. It puts them together in perfect harmony. Christian love. Now let me give you some definitions because I think this is important. These types of words are thrown out and we could all just assume varying definitions. So here's what I mean. When I say love for God or love for Christ, here's what I'm talking about. The truth concerning who God is, so inflames the affections that one cannot help but desire to be near God, to be like God, to praise God, and to please God. That's what it means to love God. And that's going to overflow in several different things. But that's what it means. A love for the brethren I defined previously as a pursuit of their good through self-sacrifice. I didn't go on to elaborate, but we have to be very clear that to pursue the, the greatest good of others through self-sacrifice as a Christian virtue flows from a desire in the heart to actually see their greatest good come about. You have a desire for their good. When we talk about a love for the world, it's the same thing. We are pursuing their good through self-sacrifice, but that pursuit flows from a desire I actually have to see them get that good. My heart actually wants them to receive good. That's a, a part of Christian love. This type of love is only given by the Spirit of God Himself. To quote Edwards again, and I'll quote several men, Quote Edwards, he says, The principle of love is the main principle in the heart of a real Christian. So the labor of love is the main business of the Christian life. It's the chief grace given. And it's given by the Spirit of God Himself. It's an early test of regeneration. 1 John 3, 14, Whoever does not love abides in death. If you don't have this kind of love, you're not a Christian. You're dead. No matter what else you do, you're not a Christian. You don't have the Spirit of God who gives life. John Owen says that there are some graces absolutely necessary unto the least degree of the life of God. The least degree. Such are faith and love. No man doth, no man can live to God, but in the exercises 
exercise of these graces. In other words, if somebody's born again, they might not know very much. They might not be able to articulate very many things. They might not can explain to you the inner workings of what happened to them five minutes ago, but they will have love. And notice in each of those definitions, I tried to emphasize the heart and the affections. Christian love is not rote duty. There are a lot of people who go, go to the text and say, well, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Therefore, love equals doing the right thing. And that's not, that is a fruit of Christian love. It's not rote duty. Christian love is not robotic. It's not forced or coerced or obligated. Christians do not love God. They do not love the brethren. They do not love the lost world because, quote, I have to. I'm obligated to. When really they don't feel it. That's not Christian love. As much as we want to emphasize that true love is an action and will assuredly produce activity. We say love is a verb. You, you can't love without acting. We cannot escape the fact that true Christian love is an affection of the heart. It's felt. It is... Nobody likes profanity in church. It is emotional. It is a pleasure of the soul. Over and over in the Song of Solomon, the church says to the Lord... He is the one whom my soul loves. Song of Solomon 5, 4, My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my mind was filled with all the facts I had learned about him. No, that's not what it says. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. You cannot tell me that's not emotional. That that's not internal exuberant excitement. That your heart just begins to beat when His hand touches the latch. That's something inside the heart. And for the saints of God, the person of Jesus Christ, the truth of who He is and of what He's done, stirs the affections inside and we feel it. Something happens inside. It's not just mental affirmation. Christian love is not heartless devotion. A Christian is a person who has come to know something of God and then their hearts are moved when they think of Him. Maybe not every time and maybe not always to the same degree, but a Christian will see God as He is revealed in Christ and the things that Christ has done, and they will get emotional. Not always. Not the same every time. We don't build our theology off of our emotions, but if you've never had an emotion about Christ, that's a fearful thing. A Christian gathers with the saints because they like it. Because there's something about the people there that creates a feeling of joy within them. I want to be around them. A Christian looks at the lost world and is moved with compassion. Christ looked at the harvest and He was moved with compassion. It wasn't that He said, well, you know, they're lost and I know that God is sovereign and that He has elected some and therefore I must go out and preach the gospel and I trust that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation and therefore I know that in my preaching some will be converted and some will be hardened and therefore I will go and just say the gospel and hope that, you know, the Spirit comes. His heart was moved with compassion. He felt it inside of him. So you can't separate true Christian love from the affections. And here's what we have to understand about Christianity. According to the Scriptures, true religion is heart religion. Now here I'm, I'm, I'm breaking the rules. I am going to divide the mind, 
that is the thinking and the intellect, from the heart, the emotions and the affections, and I'm going to put emotions and affections together, I'm separating those two and I'm saying that Christianity is a heart religion. And here's what I mean. Very often we assert, and it's true, Christianity begins with the mind. We have to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. We have the mind of Christ. Yes, it does start in the mind. But true saving faith, true Christianity never stops with the mind. It begins there, but it never stops there. It has to begin there. It can only but start there because that's how we receive information from outside of us, inside of us. But a true saving work of God never stops with the mind. It never stops with mental acumen or mental assent or belief in the facts or affirmation of the truth. Neither is Christian love merely action. Again, we call love a verb. It's a verb. You've got to act. You've got to do. You've got to show it. Love one another in deeds and not in word only. But it's never simply acting. It's not just doing, just being busy, filling up your schedule. You can't say, if someone came to you and said, well, do you love Christ? You couldn't say, well, yeah, look at my calendar. I mean, look how busy I am. That's not enough. It's not checking off a list of things that Christians are supposed to do and saying, See, I love you, Lord. I did the things that you told me to do. In between these two very biblical notions of starting in the mind and the, and the transformation and the renewal of the mind and then the actions of godliness that are produced in the Christian life, there is the root of true Christianity, which is the transformation of the heart and the will by the Spirit of Christ. The truth comes into the mind. We're taught effectually by the Spirit, and that alters the affections of a person. And so the work is not complete just because the mind has been informed. You heard the truth. Praise the Lord. That's not enough. It's not going to cut it. And the activity is not sufficient just because you've done it. It's not sufficient if it's not been rooted in a heart that is in love with God and His Christ. And because this is true, it's only the change of the heart that can be the most conclusive evidence that there has been a saving work. Only a change of the heart. And the truth is, only Christ can see the heart. We can look at outward things and we believe that a good tree bears good fruit. But if anybody wants to stand up and say, I've never been deceived by the fruit on somebody's tree, then, then they might should preach because I've been deceived over and over and over again. I'm looking at somebody who has come to all of the facts. They're doing everything right. They're confessing everything right. They're saying everything right. And they're lost. They're as lost as the day they were born. Because there's been no change in the heart. Only Christ knows the state of a person's heart. But hear that a different way. Christ knows the state of the heart. And this is the, the awful part of preaching a sermon. And, and very often the application goes like this. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Look inside your heart. Be honest with yourself. And I know, because I've done it, and we've all done it, that we all have the capability to sit in a sermon, 
hear those words, hear that command come from the pulpit and completely ignore it. It comes out like we're watching a movie. He, he just keep on, keep going. I heard you. Examine your heart. I got you. What's next? What's next? What's next? We don't, we don't comprehend that the Word of God is coming and Christ is saying you need to be honest with your heart. And so I know that I can say that and that command can be ignored and you can sit here right now and you can refuse to examine your heart and just enjoy the show. Just watch me preach. And you can come to church and you can talk the talk and you can exercise all of the formalities of service. You can go home, listen, you can go home and read your Bible every day and pray every day and you can go to work and tell other people about Jesus every day. But if these things are not coming from a heart in love with God and His Christ, they're useless for your soul. Now can God use them to bring people in? Yes, He can. But they're not going to be helpful for you. They're not useful for you. You are fooling yourself. You're fooling us. But you can't fool Jesus Christ. He knows. He has a perfect, complete, absolute knowledge of every fact and every detail of your heart. And here's my fear. Here's why this is so dangerous. Why would somebody consistently go on living out the Christian life and these duties if they're drifting in love? What, what was happening in Ephesus where they could start out with the right motivation, the, the heart of the matter, a, love of, a heart of love, and begin to do all of the right things, and after a while, they're still doing all the right things, but not with that original motivation. And you want to know, what, what, why are you doing it? And the only answer that we can come up with is something is motivating them besides a love for God. Something besides a love for Christ. Very often it's self-righteousness. It's the fleshly compulsion to do good. But it's not a love for Christ. So then I turn the question to you. What about you? What, what could possibly be motivating you to do commendable things in your life? Why do you come to church? Because it's Sunday and that's what you do. won't work. Well, because it's Sunday and Christians go to church on Sunday. Not enough. Insufficient. Well, because my family goes to church and I was raised to be in church. Won't work. Why do you do family worship? Well, I want my children to learn the Bible. Insufficient. Why do you do family worship? Because I want my children to be saved. Not enough. I, I want my children to go to heaven and not to hell. Not enough. None of those things are the appropriate beginning motivation. Why do you do your private devotions? Well, because I just want to get my day started off on the right foot. Won't work. Well, because I know that I need to spend time in the Word to, to remember some things that sort of characterize my life most of the time. Not enough. Why do you share the gospel? Well, because I know it's my duty as a Christian. Insufficient. Why do you stand up for the truth whenever you have to come in contact with people who, who put forth error as Christianity and then you defend it? No, that's not right. It's actually this. Why? Well, because they need to know the truth. That's not enough. None of these things are sufficient. And we can get so busy and do so much and get good at doing good when actually in our hearts there is no love for God. We're not actually doing it because we love God, because we love Christ, because we love His people, because we love the lost. You might even feel a strong affection and a passion to do commendable things. And you don't even realize you're not doing it out of love. 
And we can be doing all of the things that are most needful for a Christian church to be doing in our culture and have completely forgotten about the one thing that makes us a Christian church, the love of God in the heart of the people. And that's what had happened at Ephesus. They started out solid. They had a great foundation. They were laboring under these pressures. They hated lawlessness and evil. They were not slowing down. They were not tiring out. And yet Christ says, I know your works. You don't have to tell me. I know. And I know your heart behind your works. I know not just your outward works, but your inward works. And he knew that the root of their works had slowly begun to shift from love, love to God and love to Christ, to something else. And, and anything else is in vain. If it does not start in that first concentric circle, love for God and love for Christ. Something about God and something about Christ has stirred in my heart an affection that I want to be near Him. I want to please Him. I want to be like Him. I care about nothing but seeing His smile. That's all that, 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 that's motivating me. And from that, then I will begin to love the brethren. Then I will begin, begin to love the lost. But anything else that starts, or that is the motivation, is vain. So how does Christ address the problem? He does that in verses... 1, 5, and 7. I'll do verse 1 last. First, he gives them a clear prescription of what is expected and gives them a threat as a, a bit of incentive. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. To remember means to call back to the front of your mind something that had drifted in the back. He's not telling them to learn a new fact. He's saying, remember what you already knew. Bring it, bring it back to the forefront. They had not purposefully left it, but they had also not consciously kept it in the forefront of their mind. What were they to remember? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Where had they fallen from? Their first love, the, the love that they originally had, that original burning in their hearts for Christ, for His people, for the work of the kingdom. Remember that. Go back to that. Stir your mind to think about that and then repent. The memory of that first love would hopefully set before them the great distance they had fallen. When they turned around to look at the shore, they would have immediately in that moment realized how far they had drifted. If you're not looking at the shore, you don't really realize how far you are, especially when it gets out of sight. But he says, turn around and look, and you need to recognize where you've fallen from. And seeing that great distance and coming to terms with that would remind them that Christ's assessment is not false. He's exactly right. We left our love. We're, we're as busy as we could be. We left our love. The Spirit of God would use that that experiential consideration, meditation, and memory of their first love to produce in them a revulsion to their present coldness. They'd be sickened by their busyness. How could we have fallen so far? What was, what was dangling before our eyes, keeping us busy? What was it? What could it possibly have been? And then he lays out for them what would be the fruits in keeping at that repentance. Do the works you did at first. And by works, he means the same things they had been doing, but with that first love. Return to the true works of God, done in a true love for Christ. Again, even the right works without love 
like the Apostle Paul said, or like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. People who labor doing everything right without love, they gain nothing and they are nothing. Why is that? Because God doesn't need your works. God, and you don't need God to need your works. God demands your heart and you need God to have your heart. So go back and do what you've been doing, but do it with the right heart. Because we need His effectual work in the heart, the first fruit of which is love, then anything done apart from this cannot truly be said to be a work of God. Whatever you're doing, it's not God's work. It's a work of your own invention. John Flavel said, The heart of man is his worst part before it is regenerated, and the best part afterwards. It, you, you need to deal with the heart. So he says, return to the real work, the work of God, from the power, or in the power of the Holy Spirit, from a heart that has been transformed in love for Christ. Anything else, anything other than that is useless busyness. It's wasting your time. And then he gives them this threat. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, the lampstand is a picture of the Spirit-fed flame of gospel witness. So what he's saying is, if you don't go back to that first love, I'm going to come to you and remove your witness. You can keep meeting. You can keep the building. You can keep the hymnals. You can keep the pews. You can keep your schedules. You can go on with everything that you're doing. You can continue to fight. You might feel accomplished. You can continue holding back the attacks from the outside as long as you want to, but you're not going to have me you're not going to be useful to my kingdom. Now here's a great test of your love. Would you be okay with that? If this came to us, to the angel of the church in Taylorsville, North Carolina, Covenant Bible Church, remember and repent, or I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your witness. I'm going to remove your lampstand. Would you be fine if we said, listen, we've got the options here. And the Lord Jesus has said, we can keep doing what we're doing. We can, we can keep meeting, but we're just not going to have any witness in the world. You're not going to have any visible fruit, really. I mean, you can stay here and your kids will grow up here and they might even join right in with you. We might can keep this thing rolling. But you're not going to have my spirit. We can go on with weekly services, fellowship functions, meals with one another, private and family devotions, but we would know we're going to have zero effect on a dying world. A test of your love is, would I be okay with that? Would you be okay with that? I'm afraid that some people would be okay with that. Because coming to church is only a means, and being a part of a church is just a means to satisfy a guilty conscience. And you don't care if another soul ever darkens these pews. Your ticket, in your mind, your ticket's been punched. You've got your seat. Everybody else is on their own. It's like when you get on an airplane. There's this nervous feeling, you know, looking at your ticket, trying to find your seat. And then you find it, you sit down, I'm good. And all these other losers, they're trying to come in. They don't have anywhere to put their bags. They're nervous. They're freaking out. Not me. I got my seat. And that's how a lot of people view the church. I got my ticket. I got my seat. Whew! That was close. All right, here we go. Let's get to glory. This is evidence you don't have the love of God in your heart. Your religion is either all outward, it's all mental, or maybe it's all outward and all mental, but it's not real. It's not going to get you to, into the presence of Christ. 
This threat to a real Christian, a real Christian church, this is a terrifying threat. I don't want to be a useless church. I don't want to pastor a useless church. I don't want to be a useless preacher. I don't want you to be useless dads and moms. I don't want your children or my children to think that Christianity is just about what we do and don't do, what we believe and don't believe. Now, are those things important? Absolutely. But that's not it. I want my children and my wife and my church to know that even though I might not show it in public, and I'm not great at showing it, when I'm alone with my Lord, I get emotional. I love my Lord. I'm not satisfied with the work and the books and the three ring binders and the, the highlighters and the, the sermons. That's, that doesn't satisfy me. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not pacified by just doing the duties. When I get done on a, on a Lord's Day evening and say, there, I did it. Whew, man, it feels good to be on my way to glory. That's not my perspective. I'm begging God would use me and use us in this generation. But if we don't love, if we don't have a true heart work, we can forget it. So then he gives them this invitation. In verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A universal call to anyone with a spiritual ear. Anybody hearing this word in an effectual way. He says, whoever hears this word and you feel it bearing down on you and you feel the conviction of the Spirit, don't you shake that off and don't you say, well, that's just my emotions. He's just trying to get me emotional. Yeah, you're right. That is your emotions. Bite that hook, swallow that worm and follow the Spirit where He leads. Let Him, if He needs to, crush you and then bring you back up with love for Christ. That's what preaching is about. And if you don't hear this word or you don't want to hear it, you might as well leave because the rest of us are going to aggravate the far out of you because we want to do something. I don't want to be useless. And if we can come to an agreement and say, well, we've just decided that we'd rather just go about on the motions, let me know so I can start Google where I'm going to church next week. I don't want to be a part of that kind of church. Doing everything right all down the line with no love, no concern, no care for God and His Christ and His people and His kingdom. So if you have an ear, if you're hearing it, He says hear it and take it and eat it and live from it. And then He gives this promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes, contrary to popular belief, this doesn't have anything to do with sickness or disease or debt. This is the title in the Revelation and in the Scriptures for those who hold up, who hold fast, and who hold out unto the end. The, the true saints of God who receive the Word with meekness and with gladness, and they hear the words of their Lord, those who are holding fast their confession, firm to the end, He says, who those people... They're going to hear this. They're going to act. They will remember. They will repent. They will do the works they did at first. And someday they are going to eat from the tree of life and the paradise of God. This takes us back to Eden, but also makes us look forward to the new creation. The overcomers, the, the conquerors, will someday be sealed in glorified likeness to the one whom our souls love. For all of eternity, and we will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. These are the people who make it to heaven. These are the true Christians. This is the true church of God. That's what conquerors mean. 
Now all of that is secondary to the real motivation, which is back in verse 1. The motivation of who Christ is to His church. In verse 1 he says, "...the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands." What does a church who's doing everything right, without love for Christ, what do they need to hear about Him? What, what do they need to know? They need to know that He holds the seven stars in His right hand, and that He walks in the midst of the lampstands. That He is the one upholding all of the churches. That He is the one sustaining their witness to the world. That He can drop His hand at any moment. That He's the one who's given Himself to the task of building and keeping His churches. That He's in and with all of His churches presently, not physically like us, but spiritually. So He knows everything that's happening, all things visible and invisible. He's aware of all of our works, the heart work and the feet and hands work. He knows it all. That's what you need to know about Him. He knows it. Do you believe that? Are you aware that He knows? And if you say, well, yeah, I believe that He knows everything, then why would you continue to refuse to be honest with your heart and repent? If you know that He knows, who are you fooling? Us? You're not going to stand before me in the judgment? You might... Fool us and you can fool other churches and we as a church might even fool other churches and we might can fool the world, but Jesus Christ is not fooled. And so to say, well, I believe that He knows everything, but I'm not going to come, just come clean and confess that there is no love in my heart for Christ, but I'm going to keep doing the work. And I'll just, I'll just bear down with the work. I'll just put my hand to the plow a little stronger and keep my focus a little tighter in so that I don't have to realize that He knows that I'm working. If you know this and yet you continue in that path, what you're doing is you're going on like Zimri, parading Cosby before the people of God in open, defiant rebellion. I will not come to that Christ. I don't love Him. I can do this. He laid out the task. It's simple enough. I've got it. Let me know when time's up and I'll clock out. That's, that's what this is saying. So where are you? Where are we? Maybe you've already left your first love. Maybe you're just in the process of leaving your first love. You realize, I'm, I'm not as warm as I used to be. Or perhaps, you're burning with love. But you see here, that there is a real danger of saints with a good foundation and, and, and a solid leadership. There's a real threat of drifting and not even knowing it, doing everything right and drifting. So what do you do? You remember and you repent and you do the works that you did at first. Sometimes we get so busy that we don't realize we've lost our first love. We're, we're doing something. And when I talk about doing, I'm not talking about humanistic efforts. I'm not talking about philanthropic, uh, philanthropic helping people. Uh, we just want to help people. That's, that's not what Christ means when He says, do the works you did at first. He says, go back to that heart of devotion. We will very often confuse busyness with love. We confuse devotion to duty and devotion to schedule and devotion to a routine with love for Christ. And they're not the same thing. So when are you going to realize that you're drifting if not now? The Word has come. Christ has given the opportunity to say, I'm drifting. We're drifting. If you're not going to admit it now, when, when will you do it? When are you going to realize that even if we do everything we should do as a congregation, apart from love, it's useless? 
It doesn't matter if our children follow us in a line, boom, 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 all the stairs stepping down, follow us perfectly in a line into the pew and sit down beside us one by one and sit with their Bibles open in their lap and watch the preacher and do everything right. If they don't love Jesus, they'll burn in hell with that blank stare on their face that they had in the service. They'll go straight to hell with that. It's not enough if they don't love the Lord. It doesn't matter if they know all of the catechism questions and answers if they don't love Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've done your devotions today if you don't love Jesus. If you don't love Jesus... It's all worthless. It's vain. At the end of the day, we can only say it's got to be selfish. You've got to be doing it for something in yourself. You believe that it's going to do something for you that Christ alone can do. And without love to Christ in our labors, we're doing nothing more than heaping upon ourselves condemnation. Because we knew what we should do, and we knew that we should have done it, but we refused to come to the one whom our soul loves. We refuse to come to Christ, the one who has revealed all of this to us. We acted from some other motivation, and God's going to say, well, I have this. I know your works. You did this and this and this and this and this, but you didn't love me. Be gone with you. I did everything right. Sorry. You didn't love me. You didn't love my son. You terminated your labors in some form or fashion, terminated on the creature. And that's not what Christianity is. If you're not going to do it today, when are you going to come to terms with that? Next week, I'm not preaching this sermon again next week. When are you going to come to terms with this fact? Christianity is not automated obedience to legal demands. That's not Christianity. Growing as a Christian is not simply getting better at doing the right things. Paul didn't say, I bow my knees before the Father of heaven and earth so that you would grow in your knowledge of the facts and your understanding of the truth. No, he said you need to know the love of Christ. That's what we need to have in the soul. Christian growth consists in a heart that is more and more filled with love for God, love for Christ, love for His people, love in the world. It is the movement of the soul to that one. And you might have to lay your head down at night every day and say, Lord, today I acted like I didn't love you. But you know that I do. Help me tomorrow. Or perhaps you're trying to remember. You try and try to remember, but you can't remember a single time you ever actually felt love for Christ. And this is very easy to do, right? You come into the church, you hear the truth. Here's the truth, believe the truth. Well, I believe the truth. All right, you're in. Here's what we do as a church. Well, I'm doing it. Never once did you love Christ. Repent. Repent and turn to Christ. Repent of your works. Repent of your practices. Repent of affirmations and confessions. Repent. Turn to Christ from doing what is expected in our society, from what sounds good on a blog. All of it's useless if you don't love Christ. None of these things, even when you put them into practice with expert precision, none of them will save a lost soul. Only Christ can save. And He does not say, well, get all that stuff done, do it, and then then we'll talk. He says, you come to me as you are, Helpless with nothing. Bring me your nothing and I can save that. If God the Holy Spirit doesn't change you from the inside, all of our works are vain. You say, well, how can I know that the Spirit is actually doing a real work? Repent and believe the gospel. You're not commanded to know what the Spirit's doing and when He's doing a work. We're not commanded to keep a record of His, of his works. I'm, I'm watching you, Spirit, uh, and I, I've got, I see what you're doing there. I've got that here. Go ahead. That's not what we're commanded to do. 
We're commanded to repent of our works and turn to the one who can save. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Look away from yourself and all of your works. Who else? And you can raise your hands. Don't, don't, don't feel embarrassed. Has anybody else here come from heaven to earth, taken the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men? No. Is anybody else here? Could we, we properly describe you as... He's the one who knows no sin. He's blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's holy. None of us. Who else could suffer the curse of sin in the place of sinners? Anybody else here done that? Anybody else raised from the grave, ascended to the heavens, reigning from on high? None of us. Then why would we look at ourselves? Why would we look around in this room and find something to trust in? We have to look at Him. And when we see all of these things that He's done, surely it has to do something in the heart. It either repulses you or you say, that's the one I love. That's the one I'm laboring for. Jesus has done all of this and you're probably just hoping that when you get into His presence, He's going to overlook the fact that you didn't love Him for it. He knows. As Peter says, Lord, you know everything. He knows everything. Thomas Murphy said, All other motives than the constraining love of Christ in the heart soon lose their influence. Christians, church, when you start to get bored, when you start to get complacent, when you feel burnt out, you feel like you're being stretched too thin, it's because you're looking at something other than Christ. When you fall in love with Christ again, what, what's going to slow you down? That's not going to grow cold. He doesn't grow cold. He's not getting old. He's not getting boring. When you set your affections upon Him, as, as men have said, that will propel you into an eternity of love when you see Him. And we say that and we want to repeat that, but it doesn't even propel us into 24 hours of service before we just tire. Well, I'm just too busy. I'm just, doing, I'm just getting too busy. It's just too much. you got one life. One kingdom, one Christ, one life. Set your affections upon Him. Love Him and everything else will flow from that. As it should. But we have to love our Savior. Let's pray.